WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQA, the official podcast of the WMQ Comics website. I'm your host, Dan Grote, and we've got a guest. That's right, no more listening to me and Matt blather endlessly into the void. We are joined by writer Vita Ayala, writer of Marvel's Prisoner X and Valiant's Livewire. Uh, we talk about both those books, as well as their work on uh, Amanda Waller for DC, the uh, Bishop and Jean fling from Age of X-Men, a little wrestling, and a whole bunch more. Vita's also going to be writing the new James Bond series for Dynamite, along with Danny Lore, which hadn't been announced when we recorded this a couple of weeks ago, but uh, if you're listening now, Vita, congratulations! Uh, meanwhile, what is going on over at WMQComics.com? Ah, you know this and that. Uh, Joshua Bermont's got a review up for Batman Curse of the White Knight. And he's working on one for Dark Horse's Manor Black. This week's X-Man of the Week is going to be Charles Xavier, based on Jonathan Hickman and Pepe Larraz's House of X number one. And this week's bonus reading is going to focus on the lesser-known works of Brian K. Vaughn in honor of the final issue of Paper Girls coming out this week. Finally, I hear tell Will Nevin has an interview with writer Elliot Rahal coming up in advance of his new Aftershock series, Midnight Vista. So get hype for all that and much more at uh, wmqcomics.com but for now here are me and matt and vita so vita last week you went to wrestling how was it it was dope it was dope uh, i'm a big wrestling fan and i also got to take a, a really good friend of mine who has never been to a live wrestling show before but is a humongous wrestling fan so it was like watching it all again through her eyes it was it was amazing and i get to i got to watch becky lynch beat the crap out of lacey evans which is always a pleasure oh that's great was it uh house show raw smackdown raw yeah i got to go to raw nice yeah i I try not to choose which brand i love best but like you know again getting to see becky lynch beat people up is always a pleasure <laughs> well, we're, you know, we're in an age when there's more options now, too. You know, NXT and AEW and all that stuff, so. Yeah, it's true. I. It's hard, too, because you're like, I know that WWE treating them right, mm. but at the same time, they're trying to make money, so how do I support? Like, It's like comics that way. <laughs> Yo, I regularly make the comparison between wrestling and comics, like all the damn time like yep there's no there's no health insurance (laughs) we pay our own way to places like it's the same (laughs) except we don't have to get punched in the face which is gonna say hopefully there's less cte (laughs) depends on who you are (laughs) if the internet is to be believed fair enough (laughs) but yeah no there's definitely a lot of uh intersect in that uh fandom venn diagram yeah i was surprised at how many comic book fans were wrestling fans but then again i was like no this makes sense bright costumes long form storytelling and like superheroes versus supervillains it's the same uh, absolutely how, how far back do you go with uh with wrestling <laughs> oof uh since i was a kid uh when i was really little uh we would hang out with my older cousins and they had the like wrestling buddies from tonka those big like oh yeah pl- they were they were just plush dolls, but they were they were wrestling buddies, and I remember playing with those and being like, "What is this?" And my cousins being like, "Oh, you don't have like cable here. Let's watch some pay per view." <laughs> like, maybe ruined my life, maybe made it better. I don't know. Someone else be the judge. <laughs> 
I'm just I'm I'm trying to picture the old wrestling buddies now, and it's just yeah, you know, it's this soft, cuddly, plush thing, but also it's Hulk Hogan and has a mustache. Exactly, it was so weird, and they were almost completely like without texture, except for like I think they had like yeah, noses and like mustache and hair, which was weird. <laughs> yeah, once you once you start making them textured, then washing instructions get complicated and. Yeah, that's true. And it was like the 80s and 90s. Like, you don't know what kid's going to rip a piece off and just swallow it. So. Yeah, also that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I wanted to, to to start, you know, beyond that icebreaker, obviously, by uh, asking about one of my five favorite panels in all of Age of X-Men, uh, the one in <laughs> Prisoner X number four. You know where I'm going with this, where Bishop just yeah. looks down at the reader and says, my man, and all his, like, Denzel <laughs> glory. I'm not going to try and do the impression because that would be terrible. <laughs> but, uh, you know, was that was that in the initial script? Like, did you have to kind of explain to, to, to Herman Peralta, you know, the vibe you were going for with that? I think I did describe it as, like that scene from training day <laughs> and he just got it or he is a psychic if he hasn't seen it and just knew what i wanted um yeah herman is like unbearably amazing at especially the character acting stuff but yeah i, I got that back and i was like <laughs> perfect <laughs> this is great for the seven people that recognize what this is great <laughs> oh man i i gotta believe it's more than that but yeah no that definitely awesome um so i I've, I've made no secret for you know of my love for for age of x-men and and you know this current pool of talent that's that's been involved uh but you know what is what does it mean to you personally playing in this this sandbox as someone for whom the x-men is is you know kind of part of your comics history and your early comics upbringing it was really wild and really weird um <laughs> you know it, i came in after Zach and Lonnie had kind of done the big kind of Bible pitch document and done small outlines for each series. Very, very minimal stuff. Not like really hard direction for anything in particular. And I was like, ooh, there's a book with Bishop in it. That's an actual dream. Huh, I wonder if I'll get that book with Bishop in it. And they, like, that was the call. And I was like, yes, excellent. I can't I can't wait to do weird crap with Bishop. <laughs> That's what I want to do. It didn't get as weird as we could have gotten, but you know, we had to eventually kind of come back around so that Zach and Lonnie could pick it up and Omega. And I was like, all right, fine. <laughs> I won't break the world too much. Fine. But no, it was it was really incredible to be able to work with that team, too. Just there's a, you know, that team is comprised of a lot of the mutants that I really love. And yeah, it was it was bonkers. It was also interesting to do it wasn't an AU, right? Because it's canon, but like right. to play in that kind of alternate reality um, and to really see kind of what makes the X-Men as individuals, not necessarily as a team, who they are and, and how that changes when the scenario changes, um, which is, I guess, just writing in general, but with something that's so different from the main universe, that was was really interesting in terms of being an exercise. Um, I think Bishop stayed pretty much the same because his whole thing is that he knows all, like, timelines, and so he just is the same dude, but, like, you know, it was a lot of fun to, to be able to take them all for, like, a test drive. Yeah, I mean, which, you know, that's that's a lot to keep straight in your head, all those, all those timelines, but... 
he's a yeah i I, whenever he is quote unquote out of character i'm like you know he remembered another timeline that day (laughs) (laughs) Um, but i that's what i love about bishop is that like part of his thing is that his his brain it's not even a mutation it's just the, the way that his brain works and the way he's trained himself is that he will orient himself no matter where he is just given enough time Mm -hmm. and i think that's really cool and i think it makes him particularly good at like figuring out mysteries and we didn't have like a humongous mystery but there was kind of a mystery element to the story which i got to play with which was fun absolutely and you know it's one thing that's great about the character is like you know he's 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 been through the age of apocalypse so there was already you know there there's a basis for you know that story where he's sort of the man uh you know, who remembers how things are supposed to be and, you know, has done sort of the misplaced, perceived as a, as a you know, stark raving lunatic thing, but then everybody realizes, oh no, he's telling the truth. So it's like, he can go into this situation and just stay level-headed the entire time. So it's like, you know, this isn't, this isn't my first uh, reality warp rodeo. Yeah, and, and one of the things, like, you know, we all went back and forth, uh, you know, with my editors and with Zach and Lonnie, I was like, hey, so he's going to figure it out. Like, he may not have all the pieces together at once, but like, literally what he does is to figure it out. So he's going to be rattled, but he's not going to be, he's going to continue to follow whatever needs to be done. Like, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I was like, I really want to push that. Like, I think that that makes him particularly interesting in this scenario and that like, he doesn't need to see a tear in time and space to know that something is wrong like and he's going to trust his own instincts because they have literally kept him in existence not even like alive but like in existence thus far so guys i'm you know i'm gonna use that aspect and make him you know as on the ball as i can given the circumstance right because their memories have been played with but you can only fool you know bishop for so long and he's a cop the deduction putting that type of thing together is integral to who he is yeah time cop <laughs> yes the best kind of cop <laughs> if there can be such a thing um yeah right oh. but uh you know what once you got that that kind of loose you know uh, i guess bible ahead of time that zach and lonnie had put together and you know the basic sort of through line for for the book how often did you find yourself i guess commuting with the other writers involved were you mostly kind of just working with the editors at that point so one of the things that i think we all had to do um, but i just do anyway Mm -hmm. is then do a very detailed outline of the series that you know we were writing that i was writing so i did pretty in-depth issue by issue outlines before i even got started Sorry if you heard that, that was my cat. Uh, So that because it was such a tightly run event and there was so many interlocking like pieces, we had to be sure that we were all kind of on the same page and that like, for example, like, you know, the the kids from Gen X or Next Gen, sorry, Next Gen show up in prison, you know, and it's seated in the fourth issue, but it happens in the fifth. So we all had to figure out where we were going to intersect before we sat down and really started writing. So we did a lot of communication at first. And then because we did such detailed paperwork, um, I'm not sure for everyone. I assume everyone did. it. I know that Leah Williams did, for example, because mm-hmm. we talk all the time. Um, but once that was done, 
I had kind of an interesting position in this event in that my book was very, very isolated from everyone else's for the most part. So I actually, after I got approval for my detailed outline, I didn't have to communicate with anyone else. I mean, I did because they're cool people, (laughs) (laughs) but um, it was mostly me and my editor after everything was approved um, because there was very few intersection points because we were the Guantanamo Bay, (laughs) like this universe. So, um, yeah, I, I, I'm glad you mentioned the the next gen kids because I do remember like the reading the end of next gen and you know just being very, you know, sad that that glob and the gang were, uh, you know, had been sent to the danger room and they also didn't remember each other because they did the mind wipe thing, and uh, it broke my heart. I oh, love God. that book. Yeah, you know, you, you see glob's chickens and it's just it's a whole oh. thing, but you know, just seeing them sort of on the periphery in that final issue of prisoner X, I'm, you know, it, it's, it's, it's nice when those things come together. I really wanted to intersect with another book. <laughs> like I just really wanted that to happen and we got it in issue two. And then uh, Ed was like, yeah, the kids end up in prison. I was like, sweet. When can I put them in here? I was hoping that they'd come a little earlier. Uh, but the release schedule was so that it, that couldn't happen or I'd spoil, you know, what was going on, but right. yeah, I wanted to play with them a little more. I love, I love Glob so much. <laughs> uh, so many people do. Um, so I haven't read Omega yet. I have no, you know, foreknowledge of, of what's about to happen. I don't know what's going to happen to Bishop, nor am I looking for spoilers. Uh, but <laughs> you know, as, as of, as of, of the end of prisoner X, do you feel like you've left Bishop in a good place for uh, the next person presumably Hickman, maybe it's somebody else, but, you know, to pick up and and run with. I think so. I think, you know, with a character like him, it can be a little complicated because he's been around for a while and, you know, has done a lot of things. Um, Mm -hmm. But with this kind of ending of Prisoner X, I wanted to bring him to a place where he had had time to examine himself and his motivations and what, you know, what he saw his role was in terms of, you know, other mutants and, and the people on his team. Um, and we, you know, I think we got him to a place where he was like, I'm about my people and what's happening to my people is not right. And I'm going to physically and actively try and stop the wrong, um, which I think is when he's at his best. So. Now also coming out of age of X-Men do you see a possible future for Bishop and Jean Grey? I mean, there are a couple who broke through that Nate Grey programming. So there's some connection there. And it's such an interesting couple, couple as I never thought of them together before the series started. And also, have you seen a ship name for them? Because I've yet to be able to stumble across one. I have not seen a ship name, but I'm definitely uh, interested. I might Google that after we get off. (laughs) Uh, I did not see them together before this. That was a surprise to me. I mean, I read, you know, I read it in script, but before then I I was like, oh, okay. Uh, I don't know. There's something so epic about Jean's romances. And it feels to me like the way it was portrayed in age of X-Men was much more grounded and like normal. (laughs) If you know what I mean? Like 
it just like Jean's romances are always like destined and doomed and faded and all the big, you know, capital letters. And they just seemed like, hey, we've both been through a lot of stuff and we're together now and we're taking solace in each other. So it seems more like ships passing in the night than anything else. But that's just me. I don't make those decisions. I need to <laughs> need to make that clear. So maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Um, yeah, Gene's, Gene's romances are definitely a whole thing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they sure are. <laughs> you know, if anything, she deserves just like a nice, simple, you know, co-worker hookup with no strings. But... <laughs> She needs to just, like, she needs me time. She, that song by Lizzo, Soulmate, that's what Jean needs. <laughs> just be your own soulmate. <laughs> like, take care of yourself. Last week, I said the exact same thing about Scott. He, <laughs> the, he has not been single since he was 17 years old. He needs a year and a half, two years of just, you know, Loving himself. Yeah, yeah, just yeah. like draw yourself a bubble bath, like have some wine, Scott. Stay away from telepaths. Just oh, don't yes. take a random job on a on a commercial frigate. Yeah, stay away from boats and stay away from telepaths. Just just be by yourself. Stay man. away from planes too. <laughs> yeah, those two. Um, how deep does your personal series bible go on some of the the background inmates that uh you and Hermont created for the series you know i i kind of personally envision almost like you know how you get into like the later seasons of orange is the new black and they just keep kind of taking random characters and like you get a flashback episode now and you get a flashback episode and then they eventually sort of become part of the main cast they go pretty deep um it some more than others, but the way <laughs> it's actually a lot like that. We're like, there's that sequence. And I think it's issue four, I think where Bishop is trying to convince them all to like riot <laughs> <laughs> that like two page spread. Um, and they, you know, you get a flash of like a bunch of pairs of them, all of those stories. Like I know what those stories were. Mm-hmm. Um, and Herman and I, Herman did all of the designs and stuff. And then we talked about like why, they worked in certain ways and then you know they all have names even though we don't see them all they all have like star signs and favorite songs <laughs> so i don't know I, I like at first i was like well i'm not going to spend a ton of time with characters that are you know going to be background stuff but herman mm-hmm. took so much time like really designing each of their looks and kind of making them seem seem like real people. And so I was like, you know what, if, if he's going to put in that much time, then I'm going to put in that much time. Um, Cause it would be a disservice to him. He clearly loved them. <laughs> so. Uh, um, you know, you mentioned, you mentioned the prison riot and I just kind of drew the connection between that and uh, um, uh, extremists. Sorry, I blanked for a second. <laughs> and, yeah, there's a lot. There's there's it's it's amazing how much rioting ends up happening in this tightly controlled utopia. Once we get toward yeah. the end of things, well, like with with the extremists, like we have these people who are the I, we can curse you said right? Yes. Oh yeah. They have been fucked with the most. Yeah. Like of all the people in this quote unquote utopia, they have lost the most. Um, so when they start remembering that, 
they are the people that are most likely to tear shit apart, right? So we have, like, I mean, it's a lot of the queer characters, and it's also, like, Jubilee, Mm -hmm. who's lost her son, like, all this stuff. Like, you've stripped away pieces of their identity that were, you know, they could feel that they were missing. It's not just like, oh, I lost some memories. Like, you know what I mean? Not that that is easy either, but, you know, that kind of tearing apart of a person is is that's personal mm-hmm. <laughs> so you absolutely i mean that's why we riot in real life right and then in the in the prison book um you know all of these people are in a prison by no fault of their own literally all of them are in there either because they loved someone or they were related to someone mm-hmm. or you know stuff like that like they're in there because they care about people that's a that's a crazy kind of oppression. I mean, you know, like the, that's that's truly bonkers. So, you know, they were, the way that we set it up, the prison kind of was also a mental prison. Mm-hmm. And it kind of it convinces you that you're there for a reason, right? But once that falls away, the the, you know, the anger and the kind of indignant like how dare you put me in here? I I have literally done nothing wrong. Is is what else can you do but tear it apart again? Like <laughs> Um, it's almost like Leah and I really had something to say about oppression and marginalization. <laughs> Weird. Um, you know, speaking of, of kind of the two of you, I was last night I was watching the um, the video that you guys and Teeny Howard did for uh, Pride Month, and you know, I just remember kind of seeing all the, the the photos from you guys were all kind of like together at the time, and feeling like you know, especially after the past few months of comics, you know. I am ready for this as a ruling triumvirate. So, you know, whenever you guys are ready to sort of storm the castle, you know. (laughs) We're going to take over the world. Absolutely. We're the, uh, we're trash queer squad. That's who we are. (laughs) I I love them both very much. (laughs) (laughs) Benevolent and fabulous. Um, Now we, we're all very good friends. Uh, We talk like every day. Uh, I have, the utmost like love and respect for them honestly like when they when they talk i listen because they're both incredibly wise and incredibly empathetic and fierce people i'm like oh yep you're the people that people should be listening to um and they tell me that i am also this which is very kind uh, i don't think it's true but i'll you know what if they say it i'll take it <laughs> so at one point, you were part of DC's uh, the talent development workshop. Uh, what did that? What did you get out of that? Uh, it was it was a really interesting experience. I, I really liked the workshop itself. Uh, you know, I was part of the pilot program with Matt Rosenberg and like Chris Sabella uh, and a bunch of other folks, and it was it was a very large program. But it was really nice to kind of be able to be f- not forced, but like be forced to sit and speak to other writers um, and to critique each other's work and take critique on our own work. I've always loved the like kind of like writer's room style of creation. And so that it wasn't quite that it really was what was on the box. Like it was a workshop, but you know, I learned a lot of stuff just listening to other people and, and reading their scripts and seeing, you know, physically how they do things. Uh, and then going forward from there, DC, you know, published my first comic. Uh, so that's pretty awesome. And, you know, I got to do a lot of anthology stuff and some kind of one shot stuff for them, which was really awesome as well. I, I got a lot out of it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, 
you got to write uh, one of the sort of very few uh, Amanda Waller sort of solo spotlight stories. She's one of my fi- top ten favorite DC characters of all time, and she's usually this sort of background figure. And you got to write this great, you know, Amanda at the center of the story stories, and that's was she a character you? had a lot of experience with before or was she someone who you were looking at DC's catalog and was like, Oh no, this is the character I want to write. Oh, I love Amanda Waller. Yeah. I, I'm a really big uh, suicide squad, like the older stuff, the Ostrander stuff fam. Um, but also she like, <laughs> uh, she was one of the few prominent black woman, like characters that they had. Uh, and as a black femme person, that was particularly important to me, just seeing that. Uh, and then also she's, you know, incredibly intelligent and like, I mean, I like her ruthlessness, but also just like, she's very shrewd and she knows how to get what she wants. And I don't like, it's just really nice to see. And so she was someone that like, they actually offered that to me, but I jumped on it immediately. I was like, uh, yeah, sure. I actually... It was offered to me by uh, one of the assistant editors at the time. Um, she's now like editing a bunch of stuff. Uh, but she was like, do you think you'd like to do this? And I was like, I don't know. I'll call you uh, back and let you know. Because I had to hang up and just scream. <laughs> I was like, ooh. <laughs> and I was like, so I call her back. I'm like, yeah, I guess I could do it. That sounds cool. <laughs> like, no problem. She was like, okay. Like, we're glad that like you're on board. But I was like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I can pick my Suicide Squad and I can, like, write Amanda Waller. And then I realized that I'd have to write Amanda Waller, which is really intimidating. But, you know, that's the bridge you get across when you get there. (laughs) And you balance both that ruthlessness with her humanity, which I've seen a lot of writers fail with over the years and make Amanda just this sort of cold calculating almost machine that isn't what the original Ostrander version of that character was. Yeah. You know, for her, especially, I really wanted to get into her head and figure out what her motivations were. And it just doesn't make sense when she's just like cruel for no reason. You know what I mean? Like she's the person that gets shit done. That's it. That is what she's built her entire kind of like career around that Someone, in order for us to survive, someone has to be the person that will do anything. And she is that person. But that doesn't mean you're necessarily an evil person. That just means you're you're willing to make, you know, moral sacrifices that others aren't going to make. Whether that makes you, like, you know, bad or good, I don't know. But, like, and so, you know, when writing from that perspective, the rest of it kind of, like, fell into place. Uh, you know, she's not like a mustache twirling villain. She's someone who sees a problem and she's going to solve it. And it doesn't matter how much blood has to be spilled to solve it. Yeah, I, I'll, the image of Amanda Waller in my head is always the cover of Suicide Squad number 10, where five foot four, five foot five Amanda <laughs> Waller is sticking her finger in the face of yes. Batman. And just who, I mean, and I will say, as everyone who listens to this podcast knows, Batman is my my jam. Batman is my <laughs> thing and has been since I was nine years old. But 
damn, Amanda Waller standing up to Batman there, or CCH Pounder's version uh, on Justice yes. League Unlimited yes. is just when she does the same thing when Batman shows up in her bathroom and she doesn't even blink. It's like that is why that character is so awesome. She, what could Batman possibly do to her? She knows that he has a limit, and she knows where that limit is, and hers is way further. So you can't play chicken with this woman. Like she's gonna let you know. One of my favorite um, is I forget what issue of like Justice League it is, but the one where she basically it's the Exorcist cover. <laughs> I see yeah. the cover of my mind, and I was like, man, just anytime she shows up, Batman's like, oh man, <laughs> <laughs> dang it. <laughs> but yeah, like I I love Batman. I I you know of the of the of the two big boys from DC, he's always been my jam. But like. I'm gonna put my money on Waller against almost anyone in that universe. With like maybe the only person that I would actually like put my money on in a fight against her would be Wonder Woman because Wonder Woman she has the long game experience. But yeah, Diana is willing to cross that that line too, as she has in the past with Maxwell Lord and some That's of the right. others. Yeah, Diana. Diana is a uh, is a whole another another animal (laughs) yep she does not have that line that both bruce and clark do yeah her perspective is definitely different i but what i find interesting about her especially when comparing her to waller actually is that she's still coming from a place of empathy um and waller she's not like waller is a human being like she feels and she has lots of feelings but you know she acts from an objective place and Diana acts from a passionate, like, personal place. So I, I, they're an interesting kind of juxtaposition. Um, getting back a little bit to the uh, to the workshop, uh, you know, you talked about enjoying the writer's room approach. Do you, do you feel like, you know, your time there kind of helped you, uh, you know, when it came time for, you know, the event stuff, like your, your Age of X-Men, and, and even doing, you know, working on that, the Marvel Knights project with uh, Matt and everybody, uh, was that, yeah, uh, earlier this year. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, it definitely prepared me to, to kind of understand a superhero story um, structurally, right? So, I, you know, I'd written a bunch of prose before then, and I'd also written, like, independent comics, like, you know, uh, creator-owned stuff, but, but Scott... Uh, did a very, very good job, no surprise, because he was actually an educator, of kind of breaking down the actual structure of how superhero stories work. Uh, and he kind of talked about it in terms of like mythology as well. And I was like, oh, yeah, no, here we are. That makes complete sense. Uh, and so then going into like an event like Marvel Knights, for example, I was able to see, all right, this is my place in the structure. What needs to happen tonally now in the story to get us, you know, to the place where we need to be for the next issue. And also how do I do that while telling a complete story in my, you know, and I, I think, you know, I credit both the people in the workshop in terms of like the other writers and Scott as well. Um, it was very, very, very helpful. Uh, the other, uh, one of the other books you're writing right now is Livewire over at Valiant. Uh, I'm a, a big Valiant fan, but that particular corner of the Valiant universe with the Psyots has never been where I've gravitated. I'm usually hanging with the brothers on Ipata. Uh, but 
between uh, Jody Hauser's Faith and Livewire, I'm now much more curious about that Harbinger corner of the universe. Um, what what was it about Livewire that drew you to her? I read, I mean, I read a bunch of their stuff, right? But I read uh, Secret Weapons, and that book, I think it's like the best thing that they've done, <laughs> uh, for sure. And that book humanized her in a way that I think can be very hard with a pow- like a, a, a character that's so powerful. Because she's basically a god, especially now, because everything is technologically based, right? Like, <laughs> um, how do you get to the heart of a character like that and make her relatable and empathetic? And I think that Secret Weapons absolutely did that. And so when I was, you know, offered the chance to, like, pitch on I, a few things, I was like, I would love to pitch for her. <laughs> um, I don't know if you've read Secret Weapons, but if you have not, oh, yeah. I definitely... Okay, yeah, that's that book is incredible uh truly again a masterclass in going here's someone that should be completely alien to you because of their power level and because of kind of their experience here's here's them as a person because um, i i had only really had experience with her f- before that as well from unity where mm. she mostly spent her time hanging out with ginger the giant robot i'm sad i didn't get to play with ginger the giant robot i'm not gonna lie <laughs> <laughs> You know, I mean, Secret Weapons was great and gorgeous. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Patricia and Raul are, oh, God, they're incredible. Um, I'm so happy that we got to work together. They're both, you know, unbelievably amazing artists and also just, like, really great people. Um, what what went through your mind uh, when the announcement came out that, uh, or when Dalian told you that Livewire was going to be extended to an ongoing? I was so stoked. Uh, you know, I would have been happy with just the one the one arc for sure. But being able to kind of take her from, you know, we leave her at the end of the first arc at this place where she's like, I have a lot of work to do. Um, I will never be necessarily redeemed, but that doesn't mean I, I get to put down the work. Uh, and that was a really cool place to end. But the idea of being like, all right, what does that look like? <laughs> was really exciting. Uh, and then, you know, in the third arc, I, I can't give away too much, but I think we leave her in a place where, you know, it's, again, I don't think she'll ever be redeemed, redeemed, but where she's like, I think I'm on the right path and doing what I need to do. That is awesome. You know, I was I was doing the math the other day and I was like, well, Exo Manowar ended, so I think Livewire's the only actual ongoing right now at Valiant, so... That is that's pretty awesome. It's exciting. Yeah. Uh, it's been dope. <laughs> yeah. uh, you mentioned uh, Raul and Patricia, and uh, in the second arc, you worked with uh, Kano, who uh, you know oh, all so of whom, good. Yeah, all of whom, for my money, are the best artists working at Valiant right now. You know, you you've been working with uh, Herman Peralta on Prisoner X, who you know we knew he so was, good. Yeah, we knew he was good from his Cable arc, you know, with Zack and Lonnie, but you know probably. Between Prisoner X and now uh, Strike Force with Teeny, he's going to blow up. Mm. And because you're not lucky enough, you know, you worked with Leona Kangas on Devil's Die, uh, <laughs> probably yeah. one of the coolest people we've had on our show, uh, which is a long way to me asking, uh, how do you sort of break in your relationships with all these these talented people? Uh, with Liana, I was uh, especially lucky because Liana is one of my best friends. <laughs> 
so uh, the editor, Sarah, was like, hey, do you guys want to work together? We were like, uh, clearly, <laughs> yes. Um, with Liana, too, and with a couple of other people, uh, I've been fortunate in that I can hop on the phone and pre-scripting be like, all right, we have an outline, but let's do this. Let's really talk it through. What do you want to do? What do you want to see? What is there anything that doesn't make sense? Blah, blah, blah. Um, and then with people who... Uh, when I don't know who it is, if it's something like Livewire, I sent the, again, my detailed arc breakdowns. Um, and I know that the editor shared them. And then when I write my first script to someone, uh, I always have like a page or so of just like me going, you know, you know, I'm happy to work with you because that's clearly true. <laughs> you know, here's how I do things. Please understand like, you can basically it's a letter going you can do whatever you want this is all just suggestion <laughs> um, but just kind of explaining how I work and, and kind of why I do things the way I do and then begging them please email me or call me or whatever if you want to change anything or if there's anything you want to do you know in a further issue or whatever and usually that's pretty good some people don't ever contact me and I'm like okay you know that's up to you and then some people like will dm uh, I know that I I would email back and forth with Raul and Patricia all the time, and then kind of just once or twice. Um, Tana on the third arc, like twice a week, emails like and and very communicative, which I, I love communication. Um, so yeah, it's you know I just let them know up front, like hey, you're doing the heavy lifting, so whatever I can do to make it easier for you, please let me know. Uh, and then sometimes some people do. <laughs> So I'm curious, I mainlined Prisoner X over the weekend and caught up on Livewire, and it got me thinking about psyots and mutants. And do you feel like their places in the universe or anything are really different, or they're both just sort of the same trope, which is not a slight to either Marvel or Valiant tropes <laughs> or tropes for a reason, and they work are psyots just sort of what mutants would be if there was only magneto and not charles xavier <laughs> uh i think that maybe originally before the relaunch uh in the early 2010s maybe that's what it was uh but since since the relaunch they're very different um i think that sometimes they kind of manifest in ways that seem familiar to mutants but I, I think one of the really interesting and, and kind of unique things is that there are so few psyots. Um, and you wouldn't know that, right? Because a lot of the series follow psyots, but like there are like handfuls. Um, whereas mutants are just like people are mutating, and so we get more and more of them. And so you can't have a movement in the way that you can have with mutants. Um, so you can't do the same kinds of, like, grander scale storytelling, right? You have to do very personal stories with these, like, you can do big stakes, but you have to keep in mind that there are so, so far fewer of them that it's not going to shake down in the same way. Um, I think another thing that really does make them unique and, and kind of cool is that they don't manifest without help, Right. So psyots have to be activated. Sometimes it's an organic activation, um, but it has to, it's intentional. Uh, a lot of them are activated through artificial means, Harada doing what he do. Uh, <laughs> whereas with mutants, it's kind of, it's, it's not a rite of passage, but it's like, 
puberty, right? It's just a natural process that like you continue to become and this is what you are becoming. And so whenever you see a Syot, you have to keep in mind that they, something was done to them intentionally to make them the way that they are. Even though they had the potential, that potential was realized for a reason. And that I think is really interesting, right? Because th there are no accidents when it comes to Syot's. Uh, so I think that, you know, the kinds of stories that you tell just fundamentally are different because of that. Um, so, yeah. Uh, but I do, I love both. Uh, you know, I grew up with X-Men. I used to read the old Valiant stuff, but like piecemeal, you know, like when you're a kid and you just find them. <laughs> uh, you're a former uh, comic shop employee. Uh, I imagine, you know, you're still inside the, you know, you're still inside a shop regularly for signings or, or you know, maybe just to pick up your pull still, uh, you know. When you see something is askew in a shop, does your background <laughs> kick in? Yeah. Does your background yeah. kick in? You find yourself fixing it? Oh, yeah. I... And I used to work at a bookstore, too. So, like, <laughs> nothing is safe. I'm constantly straightening things in stores. <laughs> uh, uh. You're preaching to the choir. <laughs> 15 years at a comic shop and six years at a Borders. Believe me. Oh I, I know the... Oh. I worked at Barnes & Noble, uh, the flagship store in Union Square, for about a year. And, like, I just – there was just two times a day where you were scheduled an hour each to just straighten everything. And I just automatically, when I walk into a bookstore, I'm like, mm, here we go. Straight <laughs> 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 corners. And they're off. <laughs> <laughs> it never leaves you, man. <laughs> no. No. Uh, um, where, uh, what are you reading right now? Uh, what am I reading right now? I just got back from ALA, so I have a bunch of arcs that I'm making my way through. So I just read Mooncakes, and I am reading uh, Monstrous, because I got the big, fat hardcover. Oh, so beautiful. Uh, I'd read the first trade, and then I just haven't had time, uh, so I picked that up. Uh, and also Paper Girls. I'm always reading Paper Girls. I love that book. Uh, and I read a bunch of prose too, but that's. We we love hearing about prose too, because what I need are more book recommendations on top of the, you know, <laughs> three bookcases of unread books that are that I'm looking at right now. Absolutely, I am reading "With the Fire on High" by Elizabeth Acevedo, which uh, is it's a YA book about a Puerto Rican girl growing up in Philly, and it is incredible. Uh, I have not been this kind of entranced with a book in a very long time. Uh, I'm, I read like seven things at once, as most people I know do. Uh, I'm reading Storm of Locusts by Rebecca Roanhorse, who this is like a sequel to uh, another book of hers, Trail of Lightning, and both of them are like, they hit me right in the like, hey, remember that you used to read like weird supernatural books as a teenager? What if they were good? <laughs> That's what it's like. Um, it takes place on a reservation and it's about uh, this woman who basically kills supernatural things but is very angsty about it and it's fucking great. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. And then I'm a super big nerd so uh, I got a copy of the the Magic the Gathering novel, the last one that came out. Uh, so I've been reading that. <laughs> um, are you sad about uh, Paper Girls ending? I I am, but you know what? I'm of the mind of end it when it's good. Like I would rather get, you know, five, six really good trades than 
20 uh, mediocre trades. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's so good. I love it so much. I'm excited about the show. I don't know if I'll ever see it because I think it's on Amazon, but I'm <laughs> excited that it exists. So, something from Brian K. Vaughn had to get adapted sometime. sometime. Oh, my God. I So they filmed the pilot for Why in my neighborhood, and I was like, oh, my God, it's actually happening. And then they, like, announced that the showrunners or whatever left. I was like, but I saw it. It was real. <laughs> Don't you global frequency me, man. Do you remember glo- the glo- oh. global frequency pilot? Yeah. yeah. I love that pilot. It's terrible, but I love it. It, it was so fun. <laughs> That and the one that always the one that killed me was Lock and Key. I know that was a good pilot. It was. That was Ksenia Solo as Dodge, right? Like that. That was so good. Man, ah, could have had it all. Yeah. We we were just talking about last week about how I think it was like two years ago they announced a uh, an animated feature for Chew and it never got made and I'm still bitter about it. Oh my god, I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. Why would you do that to me? Yeah. Oh. And the cast was incredible. Oh, no. It was uh, Stephen Yun and Felicia Day and David Tennant. What happened? I don't know. It's an excellent question. I have no idea. <laughs> and, and, and what you said about, uh, you know, you'll believe it when you say, that's how I feel. I was like, oh, hey, Sandman's serious. I'm like, yeah. Yeah, yeah I believe when I say it. Yeah. Teased me with that one how many times? You, you, put, you have that thing come up on my... I guess, I guess it was Amazon, if it was Amazon, or Hulu, wherever. When Netflix. I see the first episode, Netflix, okay. When I yeah, see the first damn episode, then I'll believe that's coming out. But, yeah, seriously. But you know what? It's that it's the age of the geek, right? Like, it's happening. Like, we got two different Archie properties <laughs> going on right now. and like Three soon. What's the third one? Katie Keene. <gasps> that's right oh i forgot about that i'm like a big archie fan so i'm just soaking it in <laughs> i'm happy that it's happening a week away from a, a, the resurrection of veronica mars young justice oh my is back We're, it's a good it's a good time entertainment wise to be alive right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh so uh what's your what's your con schedule like are you are you headed for to uh san diego at the end of this week that no unfortunately this? not okay no, uh, I am going to uh, Narcon in Sweden uh, at the end of the month, which I'm super, super stoked about. And then I have FlameCon in August, Long Beach Comic Con at the end of August slash beginning of September. And then uh, uh, New York, of course, New York. All it's right. my hometown show, so I got to go to New York. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Okay, so, uh, yeah, how can, uh, as we're wrapping up, how can people follow you online if you, in fact, wish to be followed? <laughs> Just online. Please, not in my house. Uh, <laughs> I am on Twitter and Instagram at definitely Vita. Uh, I do use blockchain on Twitter, so if you find yourself blocked, it's probably not personal. That's just for my own safety and mental health. Uh, but my Instagram is open, so, yeah. I, I am on Twitter all day, uh, usually crying about something or retweeting stuff. Uh, it's mostly just like art stuff and then being angry at the government stuff. So if that's your jam and gay stuff. So if you like that stuff, please <laughs> come harass me on Twitter. All right, Vita. Thank you so, so much for doing the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. That's it for this week's show. 
As always, you can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at WMQComics.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A and WMQComics.com at Patreon.com slash WMQComics, where just a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, the ability to promote your work on our site, and a customized bonus reading column written by our own Matt Lazowitz built around the character, creator, or theme of your choice. Big thanks to our first and foremost patron, Steve Morris from Shelf Dust and the MNT. You can follow WMQ Comics on Twitter and Facebook, and you can follow me on Twitter at Daniel P. Grote and Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013. Not a fan of social media? Sign up for our weekly Q newsletter, which gives you the best of WMQ every week in your inbox. Uh, finally, and most importantly, check out WMQComics.com for all your comics news, previews, reviews, interviews, and plain old views, and we'll see you next time. W-A-Q-A. Have you ever been reading through a sack of comics and thought, maybe I should see what the Sarkham Asylum game is all about? Or been playing Marvel vs. Capcom and felt like you were at a real disadvantage since you didn't know who half the characters were? Well, Play Comics is the show for you. I'm Chris, and each episode we take a look at video games based on comic properties and how well they stick to that source material. So whether you know the comics and want to know how all these games work, or you know the games and want to find out where all this craziness came from, go check out Play Comics at playcomics.com or wherever you find your favorite podcasts.